RPC Sermons Podcast. Today's episode is a special episode from our Facebook Live series entitled Closing the Distance. These are unscripted conversations with the pastors of RPC and various special guests reflecting on topics from our ongoing sermon series. If you're interested in learning more about this community of faith, visit roswellprez.org. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott Weimer, and I'm the Interim Associate Pastor for Congregational Care at Roswell Presbyterian Church. And this is Closing the Distance, which is something that happens every week. And one of the other members of the pastoral staff gets to interview the preaching pastor, who is normally Jeff Myers. And Jeff preached on Sunday a really good sermon that we want to talk about in just a minute. But if any one of you is listening in and you're not familiar with Roswell Presbyterian Church and you're just tuning in because you want to find out a little bit more about the church, well, uh, this is a good place to be. Uh, Jeff Myers is the senior pastor here, and he's been pastor for the last five years and has led a very uh, a very fruitful season in the church's life, especially through COVID. And it's been really exciting for me, Jeff, to see people coming back to church and that's just as I was beginning in August, and and to see the excitement of the staff, but also the congregation of seeing one another again and being in live worship again, and uh, it's just a gift that that Roswell Presbyterian Church has been able to have such an effective live stream too, and so that's a positive benefit of COVID is that you really got that um, that ministry very focused, so it works really well, and I keep hearing around around the town and around Roswell congregation that people really appreciate being able to live stream when they can't be here personally. So uh, and so it's great to, uh, to do this uh, closing the distance with you because this is the first time I've done it with you. Normally it takes place on a Monday, today's a Tuesday. And so we couldn't do it Monday. And I just wanted uh, to ask you, Jeff, why couldn't we do this yesterday? Well, well Scott, we were, uh, we were golfing for charity. It was the RPC uh, charity golf tournament. All the money we raised, close to $50,000 this year, what? goes to our mission partners. It was We set a record yesterday. Yeah, it was fantastic. I, I didn't set any golfing records, but we set fundraising records, and that's what really matters. That's remarkable, $50,000. Yeah, so it's, it was fantastic. We had about 100, close to 120 golfers out, fantastic sponsors. It was really neat this year. Well, that's just great. That's really wonderful. Well, I'm, I wish that we had a lot more time to talk about the sermon from Sunday. Uh, you and I have known each other a long time. And, uh, yep. I, would, I would be able to talk about this sermon for hours, but we have a limited amount of time. Yep. So that's... We we'll can talk a, about it for hours. I just don't know if anybody else wants to listen to us talk. Yeah, about no, I'm sure they don't. So <laughs> you're in the middle of the series and you're calling it Roots to Roots. So our... our R-O-O-T-S, our rootedness in our faith, and roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Some would say routes, but we're saying roots, roots to roots. And, and we're looking at the confessions of, of the church, of the 
Presbyterian Church USA has a book of confessions. And can you tell us why we have that book of confession? Just remind us, Jeff. Well, I, yeah, I mean, for several reasons, I think one, it speaks to, it summarizes our faith for us over the past 2000 years. Um, and then it kind of directs us for the future about how we can make um, decisions and discern God's will for the future. And then it speaks to the, um, I mean, like this past weekend, the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism was a teaching tool to, to teach the fundamentals of the Christian faith from a reform perspective to children. And I can't tell you, Scott, after the service, I had a number of people tell me when they were children, in order to join the church in confirmation, they had to be able to recite word for word and answer 81 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And one woman told me really? that they had to stand in front of the church and the pastor would ask them random questions from the catechism. And if they failed, they couldn't join the church. And I was like, I was like that these days that would really cut down on church membership. Wow. And it'd be cut down on clergy too. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> now, when you were at Princeton Seminary, they have, they have an endowed program there. And I don't know if you partook of this, but anyone who could recite those questions of the shorter catechism, get it right. Got a, was it a $500 stipend? Yeah. I never did that. And actually I didn't know. And so this is, so the creeds and confessions are new to me. I didn't grow up in a confessional tradition. I grew up kind of in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition. And so coming home, and probably this is in, I mean, you remember when I was kind of figuring this stuff out, Scott, and helped me kind of think through, I think you described it when you stepped into a Presbyterian church home. I think you said coming to your theological home, did you say, when you came to it? Yeah, it was a powerful experience in the middle of the worship service. Yeah. And I think, and that's what I feel kind of with the creeds and confessions. It, it answers a lot of questions that people have in the back of their minds, but they're afraid to ask. And they just make it explicit and say, here it is. And I think that was really helpful for me to kind of anchor my faith um, and see kind of what the history of development of uh, our tradition is. I, I wonder, Jeff, if you had thought about the fact that Queen Elizabeth II, so she, the, her service was in Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is where the Westminster Divines, they gathered in 1643, and it took them several years to come up with the Westminster Confession, and then what they call the Shorter Catechism and the Longer Catechism, and did you hear that uh, because Queen Elizabeth II died in Scotland, she died a Presbyterian, because she identified with the faith of whatever uh, part of the Commonwealth she was in. Really? And so she, yeah. So, oh, wow. Well, that's a technicality, so... Uh, <laughs> You're not well, going to hear Presbyterians love technicalities. You're not going to hear a lot of that from many people, but that's true. And it's <laughs> fascinating, though, to be for our attention to be on that place in in England where where it was all written. So, I you know, and something that I've I've known you for a long time, and I've seen you teach uh, a number of times, and I've heard you teach church history in less than an hour in a way that was totally engaging, not boring, fun, and informative. So. It's no doubt that I had no doubts that you were going to be able to be effective in these creeds. But I love how you how you picked a portion of the creed and not tried to be exhaustive because who could do that? You couldn't do it. But you took the first question. Mm -hmm. What is the chief end of man or what is the chief end of a human being? And you call the sermon. What is the purpose of a human life? And tell me how you came to that title and. What was, your drive, what, what was the drivers behind you, the passion behind preaching the sermon on Sunday? Yeah, so I, I've just 
Well, I, I read some book that said like most of the creeds you, uh, and catechisms, you, you know, you, you can read the first question and move on because basically everything follows from however they answer that first question. And, um, and I just thought, what a beautiful statement. What is, what is our chief purpose, chief aim or chief end? And I think in our day and age, so many people don't know. There's like, because we live in such a diverse, pluralistic world, um, there's so many uh, options. You know, it's like going to the grocery store and trying to pick out what kind of soda you want to buy. Do I get Coke, Diet Coke, you know, lemon Coke, uh, you know, uh, classic Coke. You know, it's like, it, it, it's overwhelming. There's so many options. And so I love this because it, it, it dials in, I think, a really beautiful answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, and I think I first heard this first question cited, as I said, on Sunday in uh, Norman McLean's book, um, A River Runs Through It. And I've always thought that that he says in it, he says his dad, they had to study it for an hour and then his dad would only ask them the first question, what is the chief end? And then they would answer. And then his dad would say, that's enough. Let's go, let's go out and fish or let's go walk in the hills. And I love that. Uh, and he says that he has that great line. He says, um, and my dad said, that's, that's all you need to say. And then Norman says, and with such a beautiful answer, I think that's right. That's a beautiful answer, the purpose of a human life. Yeah, I want to talk about River Runs Through It a little bit more in just a minute. But just back to this idea of what of the sermon that you preached and uh, what is the purpose of a human life? I couldn't agree with you more that that message is so relevant today for people of any age, because we live in this and you did a wonderful job with this on Sunday. What is our purpose? And many of us might not say it out loud, but we many would. That the purpose is to amass as much as we can before we die. And mm -hmm. people live their life around that. And we often measure the success of a life based on that. Or it's we're in a celebrity culture. So what if, how do we live our life when we're not a celebrity? And of course, with social media, that's a real problem with people's mental health, right? I mean, yeah. Because if we're not if we're not active on social media, if we're not presenting ourselves in a way that's cool, and then are we really living a meaningful life? And 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 we are. We need to continue to remind ourselves that that's the purpose has nothing to do with that. That's not the purpose of existence. So we're living in a culture, I think, where people are really we're not asking that question enough. Right. So anyway, I I, I love that. Yeah, And I think, I don't know if you agree, but like, I like it. It's the two words it kind of hangs on the answer is to glorify and to enjoy. And I think not a lot of people think about their Christian Christianity, Christian life as an enjoyable one. And so something, I think something's flawed if you're living as a Christian and you're not enjoying it. Okay. What's, what's going on. And then, but if you're fully just about enjoyment, let's say, you know, we could think of like, um, addicts, uh, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but, or, or whatever it might be, or you're doing something, let's say you're a pickpocket, um, you're a thief and you enjoy being a thief. Well, the enjoyment is qualified by glorifying God. Okay. So it's not okay just to enjoy, Yeah. but it's also, it's not just about glorifying. It's also, you need to enjoy and holding these together, I think really helps us understand, uh, the duality of a human life. I really appreciate that. That's really helpful. And it, one of the, you used two passages. They were single verses, 1 Corinthians 10, and uh, was that 31? At the end of that chapter. 
And that one has to do with food and drink. What if you, because there was this conversation in the church about controversy, you know, yeah. can you eat food that's been dedicated to idols? Yeah. And, and so Paul summarizes a bit, whether you eat or you drink or you don't, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God, mm-hmm. to the glory of God. So there's a thoughtfulness to it. And then the Romans passage is something very similar for, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him belong, belong all glory forever. And, mm-hmm. and so what I was thinking about, Jeff, and, and you and I have talked about this before, I think that an effective sermon must stimulate the mind so that we think more deeply and clearly about what the scriptures are teaching and how it would, could affect us in our life today what it says about the world around us, but it also has to move the heart. It has to move us to action. And, and your sermons have really been stimulating my mind. I've been thinking a lot about them and about the one from Sunday and also motivating me to, to live into uh, a, a more full understanding of the scriptures. So I've been thinking a lot about, what, about this idea of, of glorifying God and enjoying God forever. And, and, uh, and to think that in the 17th century, it was bloody. You know, the, it was tough. Life was hard for everybody. Even if you had a good life, it was still hard compared to life today. Uh, and and so, for the Westminster divines, for those theologians to come together and come up with that as the first question and the first answer, I find that so profound. Mm-hmm. And and so those two verses that you used, how do we know if if certain verses should be given more importance than other verses in the Bible. And one of the ways we understand is through the confessions that people in history have come to this conclusion. We're not the first ones, but it's helpful to me to remember that in the 17th century, in the midst of all the challenges, that's what the theologians in our tradition said. And that has a gravitas to it that speaks to me that it really is about glorifying God and enjoying God. Mm-hmm. Are you? I agree. So, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. So the, the river runs. Through, the river <laughs> runs through it. So, uh, you spoke. You used it in a prominent way on Sunday, and I responded to it. And I wasn't really supposed to, but I was given a, an introduction to a prayer, and I couldn't help but respond to it because we both have such a powerful connection through the story of that book and we won't go into all of that now but it for me somebody asked me after the sermon they said can you really be can you, your life really be changed by reading a book and i'm not sure if the person who was asking that question was was being facetious uh-huh. or was legitimately asking a question can a book influence our lives in a way that's life changing a single book and especially a book that it's not that it's not a very long book. No. Only book ever published by Norman McLean, who was the oldest son of the Presbyterian minister in the book, uh, River Runs Through It. And and yet you said it was what you read that really motivated you to become a Presbyterian, if I heard you right. And yeah, and I think and it was the book and also the movie. And I think it because it really well, there's several there's several things that and I said it on Sunday, but like it's use of the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what is the chief purpose? So it gets to the heart of the issue. Okay. And it's very clear about that. And the first page. On the first page. Okay. Yeah. Second, it talks, it's, it emphasizes beauty. And I think 
because the reformers were so worried about idolatry, especially John Calvin, these iconoclasts, you know, they didn't like idols and icons and stained glass windows and things like that. For, for him to say, well, that's not all of Calvin. And Calvin really emphasized God's uh, creational uh, intent and beauty in nature. And so the fact that we're going to talk about a beautiful life, okay, but then what happens in the rest of that book, it wrestles with tragedy and, and it try and it keeps that, it holds that intention that life is not uh, peaches and cream, the whole thing. There is, it's muddy and it's earthy and we've got to wrestle with that. And, and living a full Christian life is living in that tension. And I think that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ has died for us is in solidarity with us, but had, doesn't let death have the last word. And so that for me, and I thought, well, if that's what, is it what it means to be a Presbyterian, count me in. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, and I mentioned in my remarks that I was born in Montana and I visited Montana. My grandparents, every summer, you visited your grandparents in Montana. Where spring your break when you were your grandparents live? They lived in a little town called Hollerton, which is, uh, it's, Billings is a place that some people know, and it's about an hour north and a little bit uh, west of Billings. Okay. And so it's um, there. The mountain range that you see from there is they're called the Crazy Mountains. And yep. so it's about uh, it's about an hour and a half, two hours from Bozeman. Okay. Yeah. See, my yeah. family's from Missoula, Montana, and so I yeah. remember if it, people been to Missoula, you know, the big M on the side of the the mountain there. My grandparents had a uh, had a house at the base of the mountain. And it was just, and I grew up going to the park there. Uh, my cousins were there. It was just, it was just a beautiful time. It was um, in Montana. I mean, they call it Big Sky Montana for a reason, right? That it's, it's just something kind of hard to put into words. The beauty of it. Um, and so I just, I and the fact that a river runs through a set there um, it really emphasizes that fact. Uh, I find just amazing. Yeah, well, and my dad graduated from the University of Montana in Missoula, and my sister was born there. So I, it's not where I visited all the time, but it was a place that was really important in my heritage. Yep. I went back and did some DNA studies just to make sure that we didn't have the same great-grandfather. And, <laughs> would, you know, and that something... That would be problematic, but yeah, might that explain would be quite a bit, too. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, but might as well have been related. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you, too, Jeff, about... Uh, the role of, of literature, reading good literature. Uh, one might argue that reading good literature is, is uh, for people who have appreciation for good literature, it's, it's an it's experience of beauty itself, the use of words, the way they're presented and the message they convey. You are an avid reader and, and I find it so fascinating that you were so moved by a book uh, of literature. And of course the scriptures move us obviously, but is, is it the case that literature helps us sometimes find our way into a different aspect of our faith that we might not have considered? And to the point of where you said, and Norman McLean said, anything that you said, anything that glorifies God is something that's beautiful. And, and so great literature can be beautiful and glorify God. Could you say a word about the, the role of yeah. literature in your life? Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I grew up, I mean, I think I was in kindergarten, first grade, and I got a library card, and I would go every week, <laughs> maybe in second or third grade, 
you know, every couple of weeks and I would stack up as many books as they let me take home. And I was the kid who would have like sneak a flashlight into his bed and be reading under the, uh, the covers, you know, and I, I'm at the time it was mostly like books about basketball. <laughs> it was about like magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. And, you know, it wasn't like I was reading great, like Shakespeare or anything, but books have always meant a lot to me. And I think, I think it's kind of like the love languages, you know, that certain things speak to us and it could be, uh, for some people, it's movies. For some people, it's dance. For some people, it's music. Um, uh, for others of us, it's literature. Some people, it's photography, art. Um, and I think God uses those as kind of windows um, into the divine, is special for people to refer to thin places. They, they just, we kind of get it. And, um, and like, like, for instance, so I have a buddy, uh, we both know Scott. Uh, Jesse, who is a great poet, and he'll get and he'll he writes these books of poetry, and he'll send them to me, and it'll be like, "What did you think?" And I'll be like, "Man," or he'll send me he said, "Oh, you should read this this poetry," and I'm like, "Man, it doesn't rhyme," and he goes, he goes, "What?" And I'm like, "And I don't want to read, <laughs> I don't want to read no poetry that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> That's called an essay." <laughs> And he just thinks he just he thinks I'm just such a fuddy duddy and like so country. And he's like, "Are you educated? Did you go to school? You can't read poetry that doesn't rhyme." But it speaks to him and doesn't speak to me. And I think sure. that that's really cool to have friends, a community of faith where we come together, um, and people are good at and God speaks to them and through them in different ways. And we can affirm that and accept the diversity of the community, but also, uh, and celebrate it and learn from one another. We also have another friend who is one of the, can lead contemporary worship, did it for years, and, or he plays in a contemporary band, he's a bassist, he can play the electric guitar, and he can also upright guitar, and he's in the Atlanta Synthi, and he's become a world-class, uh, world-renowned composer, and, and we know him, Jeff, and, and, and so, but the music that he plays, the music that he writes in and of itself is, has a beauty to it and it's deeply grounded in his faith. Mm -hmm. And it, what's really kind of cool is our two friends who didn't know each other before, Jesse and Michael in the symphony, that the, his, Jesse's poetry and Michael's compositions have come together. And the Atlanta, Atlanta symphony has played a world premiere with Jesse, his words and Michael's composition it's and amazing. it's a beautiful thing yeah it's amazing. so i'm gonna ask you i'm gonna ask you kind of a personal question and then i want to talk about next week's sermon okay and so uh when is one of the reasons this book speaks to me is i'm a presbyterian minister and i have two sons and my youngest son as you know died our youngest son justin and you preached the service and you concluded that service with the same words you concluded your sermon on Sunday, if I remember correctly. And, and you tied together the idea, if I remember, beauty and, a, and this idea, this theme of a river runs through it. Could you summarize how you did that or what you were thinking or what, what led you to do that seven years ago? Because it was... You know, we'll never forget it, Jeff, and it uh, so powerful, and uh, and it it bonds us in a way that it, it's ineffable. We can't describe how this bonds us, but uh, 
I know it's a very personal question. Can, can you say well, a word? I mean, it is personal, but, um, but yeah. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, there was, I felt like it was a gift of God. And I, um, I remember praying a lot before that service because um, I knew Justin well, and he was just like such an animating, like fun loving, like beautiful person. And, and anybody, like, I think all of us have had people we love die. And you're like, why God, why would you let this happen? And I feel like that book or whatever runs through it wrestles with that, with Paul's death and Norman's younger brother or older brother when he dies and he's murdered and they can't explain it. But yet his dad still says he's beautiful. And I think a lot of people fail to live in that truth. And they live with all the, the unknowns of, could I done more? Could I've done less? Could I? And it was just like, it, in his service, he needed to be, a, it needed to be affirmed for him, but all his family and his friends, that he was beautiful and he's in God's arms now. And I, the way A River Runs Through It finishes and what we finished on Sunday is this climax where he, he re, um, Norman references the, the raindrops from the basement of time um, and a river runs through it. And, and the words are on those raindrops and the words are theirs. And then he says this, I'm haunted by waters. And I think I love that image that, that even though I'm baptized, even though um, God's spirit, uh, you know, I've been anointed or whatever it might be, that doesn't, that doesn't wash everything away. It's still complex and life is tough. And I think, um, and that was a great gift. And I knew that, you know, our connection to, to Montana and um, in that book, and we had talked a lot about it, I think, over the years. And, um, and I think I just didn't know anything else. I, I, I didn't know anything. I just felt like it was a gift. Oh, and also, I knew for you and for Cynthia and, and Kristen and, and, and James that, like, maybe that would be a gift to, like, return to, like, long after the, the you know, memorial service homily was done or whatever. That would be a gift. You could read that and go, oh, return to like these great truths um, that could carry you on uh, in, this, in the coming days. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, I knew in that moment when you preached that message that everything you just said you hoped would happen has happened in terms of returning to that. And in that moment, you became senior pastor and you became my senior pastor. And so... Uh, that's why I'm working for you now. Since <laughs> you're my senior pastor. Well, they, they I had no choice not. when you asked me. So uh, thank you for that everlasting gift that you gave us. Uh, let's move to next week. What, what's, on, what's in store for next week? So we're going to fast forward, uh, you know, 300 years uh, to uh, Germany, 20th century. And when we think of one of the horrors uh, in human history, uh, 6 million Jews killed, murdered, um, Systemic, uh, systematically, not just a bomb, but like a whole system, a, a society to, uh, of anti-Semitism to murder. And that hatred, uh, what does the church have to say to it? Because the church, and we're going to talk about this, much of the church was complicit with the Nazis. And so we're going to talk about that and where that comes from. Um, and, and I think wrestling with both parts of I mean, Martin Luther said that the, uh, the Christian church was the greatest sinner in human history. And Karl Barth says the same thing, okay? And so we're only, and, and Barth is always great when he talks about that Judas comes from within the 12. He's not outside 
It's from the inner sanctum, his closest friends that Jesus has betrayed. And so we wrestle with that. I want to see, okay, when, when confronting great evil in the world, what do we lean on? What, what's our center? And I think that the Barman Declaration is one of the great statements about what our center is, especially in the face of totalitarianism and evil. I, I was wondering, Jeff, when you, I'm really anticipating this sermon, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I wonder if it'd be helpful if people actually Googled Barman Declaration, read it before Sunday, and just thought, and just thought, does this have anything to say to us today? Does it, does it say anything to us in the, in the 21st century in North America? Yeah. I think it'd be an interesting and perhaps even an important uh, exercise for people. Yeah, I Jeff, think that would be really helpful. Thanks so much for uh, closing the distance today. And uh, this is the first time I've done it, and it's been great. I've really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever get to do it again after this time, but I hope so. Thanks, uh, Scott. It's been fun. It's been really fun. Absolutely fun. And to anyone who's listening, we hope that if you found this helpful, pass it along to somebody. Send them the link. And more importantly, tune in on Sunday if you're not going to church somewhere else. Come to Roswell Presbyterian in the flesh or virtually. Either way, we love you. And we're so glad that you were listening today. So may God be with you and bless you throughout this week and always. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. See you soon. Yep. See you soon.